Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Kristen Daly. And I'm Melissa Miller. We are recording a couple of interviews that we've decided to pull together. And we really felt uh, the pull to do these interviews as we've been watching some of the events over the last couple of weeks. So if you are listening to this podcast for the very first time, we welcome you. And if you're listening to this podcast, let's give a little bit of context about what those social events are. Melissa, can you tell me a little bit about, you reached out and wanted to make sure that we did these interviews. And can you talk about what really made you feel like it was important for us to do an episode on race relations in America today? Yeah, everything that has been unfolding the past couple of weeks has been very upsetting and disturbing. And I've taken a big step back to make sure I am listening and learning and understanding what um, what this means for me. And what I've uncovered is that it is not enough to be not racist. I need to be anti-racist. And I really want to make that a part of my mission, my family's mission. And I was just thinking, this is really something that all moms need to be talking about. We need to be thinking about, we need to understand how to make these changes from now on. And I just thought it was really important for our curious mothers out there to, if they don't have a place to start this conversation, maybe this could be a place to start and then continue to carry that on afterwards. Or if you do have a place to start, hopefully this could be just another conversation you're engaging with. That's really why I, I wanted this to happen. A little less than two weeks ago, uh, George Floyd was killed by a police officer. And Melissa and I both live and practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we've been watching uh, our city's reactions, even though this event happened in another state, there's still been um, a pretty strong reaction amongst our community. And it's been pretty emotional. And as we were talking about our platform, one of the thoughts we had was what would be the way that we could create a message that would be impactful to curious mothers? And how do we also help to elevate some voices of black women? Luckily enough, Melissa was able to reach out to Sharice Johnson, who is the founder of Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness, and she is a counselor and mother of two children and um, was willing to talk to us about what it's like to be a Black woman who practices and also is raising two older adolescent, early adulthood children. And we were also able to interview Mike Harris. And Mike Harris is also a counselor, and she is a mother of one child. And each interviewee was able to offer us a little bit of a different perspective. And I think that there are some really important messages that they have to share. So we decided that it would make sense to start with Sharice's interview because she kind of really talks about some of the the practices that can help work against some of our cultural history of racism and then flow into Mike's interview where Mike was able to also discuss some meaningful resources for mothers and especially mothers of younger children and ways to help them digest some of what's happening around all of us today. 
So we're thankful that you decided to join us. Listening to The Curious Mother, a place where we unpack all things related to mothering. This is a community where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Melissa Miller. And I'm Kristen Daly. We are beyond honored to have a guest with us today, Sharice Johnson who has her master's in professional counseling and is also working on her PhD. She is a colleague of ours. And one of the reasons why we've asked her to join us today is because uh, following Sharice on social media, she has an incredibly powerful voice. And I've really been moved by what she has posted regarding being a black woman in America and having a son and a family. I highly respect her voice and we are very lucky to have her on with us today to talk about race for moms. This is a huge topic that all mothers we hope are watching and listening and learning. And we want to really reach mothers out there with this huge topic that we all need to actively engage in. So Sharice, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me and opening up the platform for such a heavy yet valuable conversation. Can you share a little bit about what the last week has been like for you? Woo, loaded. Um, Emotionally exhausting on so many levels. You know, so I'm watching, observing, listening. Then you have the aspects of just being a mom, raising Black children and specifically Black son. And the fear that's always been there, but then is just reignited by these situations that occur. You know, in my conversations with many people during the time of civil rights, these issues were prevalent but as a culture we were aware we expected it constantly and it's not that we don't expect it now but we were more in a place of believing that it was occurring a lot less Mm -hmm. and so this is a different layer of trauma because you're ripped out of that false positive with these very vivid reminders that catch you off guard and then connect the history of your own pieces of trauma that you're constantly working through at the same time. And so you have that occurring. And I have children that I'm also trying to balance. I have to make you aware, and we always have, and I'm also trying to help you not become too angry or too hurt and to protect the relationships that you do have and how do you balance that plate. And then as a therapist, I need to also turn all of that off and hold space for the people that I work with who have questions or need questions. And then a husband, I mean, there's just so many layers to that. So it's, it's been 
a lot. It's always been a lot, but it just took it to a completely different place. When you think about the relationship with your kids and raising your kids, like one of the things I keep thinking about is I know that when I try to teach my kids anything, they think I'm a moron, you know, and <laughs> it's like I must have to pull back and let life teach them because that's a little bit more influential. But mm -hmm. I imagine that that is a very different experience when you are thinking about raising a black son. Yeah, you know, there is no room for them not to listen. So a lot of times, for example, as a parent, I've had a lot of different moms go, you are so tough on your kids. And sometimes I would say, hey, I don't have a choice and I need you to back off. And at other moments, I would just be exhausted by having that conversation and, and not saying anything, you know, so these are conversations that we have with our children, whether male or female, definitely by the time that they're four, mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of navigate through some of it differently when they're younger, but it just depends on where you are and where you live and what they're experiencing at that time. But undoubtedly at age four, you just have very frank conversations of son, I love you. And I know that you see every other kid around you that's up and playing and climbing all over the walls, but I can't let you do that. Because if you go to school next year and you do that, the consequences for you will be different. And so you have to be still and you just have to trust me when I say that. It takes away parts of their childhood in a different way, their reality of things the gravity of things for them is much more wide and vast because it's a matter of, of safety. You know, like if we tell you stop or come or run or don't, you can't ask why. You just have to trust me and, and you have to listen. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those necessary conversations? What were some of the themes that you knew were important to hit on? You know, it's not even so much themes in, in a certain way. It is helping them understand how they're perceived depending upon who they're going to be around. Mm -hmm. So I will often talk to my kids about if you want to consider this a theme of being a hybrid of knowing how to be comfortable in your own culture because there is an aspect of taking them too far out of that as well and that can cause a challenge. But I also have to force you into situations where you need to be comfortable around cultures that aren't like yours and still be competent enough to believe that you deserve to be there, that you are equally as smart or why you might be viewed as threatening, even though you're really not. I would say communication is a big theme. We culturally are likely to be a little bit more direct and straightforward with what we think about things that isn't always valued. Um, in other situations, things may be more of we present differently face-to-face -face in our conversations, and that looks different when you're telling somebody how they feel. And so that's a big conversation, for example, that I have had to have with my daughter, who has a diverse friend population, whereas if you ask her a question, she's going to tell you the, the truth of what she thinks. And so she's had some really tough moments where she's realized like, wait a minute, not everybody actually wants to know what I really think. Like when they ask me that question, they really might just be asking me to co-sign on what they're saying. 
Mm-hmm. And when I don't, they are crushed and offended and it becomes really big. And the lines to when that happens are pretty distinct. And so it's been kind of helping her understand you can say anything you want. It's going to be how you say it. And then her going, but that feels very invalidating. And then I feel like I'm not being honest and why ask me, you know? And so being a hybrid communication, understanding how you're going to be perceived. And so as a son, you cannot wear a hoodie on your head, even if it's freezing cold, we will get you a certain kind of hat. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can't be in the car with your hood on because you just got in and the car isn't warm yet going down the road at nine o'clock. And I know you don't understand that, or you might even think we're being over the top, but I'm serious. Like you're going to get in trouble if we see you doing that. And here's why, you know, so that might be an example or again, to my daughter, if you are animated, it is going to be perceived very differently then if a counterpart of a different race is animated, it will be accepted. And you guys may be saying and verbalizing the exact same thing, but it will hold with you longer. And so we constantly have to teach our kids how to filter throughout the day and manage those microaggressions and yet still try to find a way to be confident and whole and feel valuable, um, which is pretty challenging. Yeah, I would imagine that creates a really significant psychological toll. Like it's, you know, there's never, there's not that sense of like being able to fluidly move through the world. No, the, the, the only place that you are allowed to be fluid is at home. When you're not home, you're on. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep in mind that at every moment, someone is watching, looking, Um, thinking and they see it and they notice and there's different pieces that they pick up along the way and it's constant conversation you know we can be in places as a family and there are people that we know that if we see them in certain places they acknowledge us and then there are other moments where they don't Mm -hmm. Um, we're the same you you know we look the same you're well aware we were in close proximity And just the questions of why did they not say hi? And I waved at them and they just froze and acted like they didn't know me, but that's not how they are here. And yeah, just finding ways to answer those questions truthfully. And again, trying to help them just maintain, but we still just want to operate in love, which is a place for us where faith plays a huge part of helping us keep all of that in perspective. There's a few things that really stand out to me in everything that you just shared. And the first one is the judgment that you probably have felt from other moms in how you parent. And I think that I'm hopeful that this podcast, when other moms are listening, this is a good checkpoint for them where they're like, oh my gosh, have I done that? Because I, I don't think if moms understand the necessity behind that parenting, yeah. then then they they are on the wrong side of judgment, right? I think just hearing this story, I think all of us as moms, we need to take a step back and go, oh my gosh, I'm sure I've done that. I had better start to educate myself as the why that's necessary. And then my question to you is, how could moms of all colors better support other women? Of color. You know, I would say to start first as a whole, 
we could all do a better job as moms of just not judging each other's parenting Mm -hmm. and just foundationally giving each other the space to acknowledge, you know, everyone is doing the best they can with what they know to do and what they've been taught, I think has to be the foundation. And if we would get to know each other better, then we would understand the why, you know, so when we're in relationship and you know more about who we are and how we've grown up and why we respond and believe the way we do, then by nature, I'm going to judge less because that little fleeting moment of what I just saw is not a reflection of what I know about you. And so it's not judging what you don't understand but first going, how do we just seek to understand and do life in diverse ways that helps increase our understanding? You know, it is, it makes sense by nature. We tend to connect with other families that are similar to us in terms of values or beliefs and how we parent. Um, But that then consequently just creates a very small view of what it should look like and so again give everybody the space because you're not really fully aware of their picture and what they're holding and then as you kind of keep breaking that down having experiences like doing life with other families really helps open up and give a different perspective and when you do that then you're less likely to make assumptions about other things that you don't know versus just going like okay I'm I'm observing this but I'm not adding a story to it Um, based on my own lens because I don't know anything about that person and what they've been through. When you think about the idea of folks with younger children, is there anything in particular, any conversations that moms should be having with their younger children to even just process the information related to what's been in the media? Important to acknowledge to kids, yeah, it is scary. You know, something that may be helpful to an elementary child would be, you know, those moments where you do something and you kind of throw a tantrum (laughs) and get upset and kind of just do things that then maybe later you're like, uh, yeah, I was expressing some things that were going on for me, but I didn't mean to break X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, I think a lot of kids can identify with that. And using that as an analogy of, you know, when people are upset, everybody has very different ways of demonstrating what they're upset about. And then really from there, moving it back to, but here's what we can do to help make sure that we are showing love, you know, so you don't want to get into the history of riots that they're not going to understand, but you want to acknowledge, yes, they're angry and let's normalize that we all have moments that we do things in anger and those things can be scary. And that's something that we all have to work on and then bringing it back to, but let me show you or explain to you they're hurting, you know, or they feel like there have been things in their life that aren't fair. So kids can understand the themes about unfair or hurt or feeling excluded, helping them think of moments that maybe they felt that way and how that made them feel. Many of the people that you see, some of them have felt like that 
maybe every day for a very, very long time. And so they're getting into the emotions behind empathizing and going, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't like when I didn't feel like I fit and belong. So just abstract themes, you know, abstract concrete, again, depending upon that spectrum that they can identify with and then bringing culture into their life through things like stories or age appropriate movies or even just connecting movies that have themes of injustice and then connecting that to the conversation. And then as they grow, being able to synthesize that a little bit more at a time. Heard a lot of parents of elementary school age kids saying like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, we don't have the news on. And this is kind of always, that's too traumatic. We're too young. I Mm -hmm. I hope that there's not this fear of making kids uncomfortable or they're too young, they can't understand. Like, Mm -hmm. I really hope all mothers hear through this that it's okay to be uncomfortable. And it is really important that we're talking about race and injustice and Mm -hmm. and, and more so than the protests, right? Like the protest is important, Mm -hmm. but really the bigger stuff that's going on in our world. Mm -hmm. And there is an appropriate way to do that at every age. And so if any mother is listening to this right now and it's like, oh, well, they're too young. We'll address this when they're older. That's too mm-hmm. late. Correct. We really need to be doing this all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it's absolutely too late. You know, kids as young as toddlers begin to see differences, right? Just as they're learning colors and shape and size and picking up words from things that they watch fat tall blonde you know they're understanding those distinctions so I would dare say there absolutely is going to be that thought of this is uncomfortable for me and so I'm not comfortable sharing this with my kid we'll have this conversation when they're older and yes by that time it is absolutely too late or just extremely difficult. Um, Then you also add, there's a lot of elementary kids who have access to cell phones. They know more than you think. And so whereas you may feel or believe that it is traumatic for them, you may not be talking about it, but they, they could also be playing with another child who has a lot of information and whose family is talking about it. And they're hearing and then collecting pieces of information from them or kids are hearing their parents or other adults talk about it. Those adults think that the kids aren't paying attention. They absolutely are. Kids are brilliant. And then they're synthesizing what they think they heard. And then they're passing that on to the next person and sharing that, you know, and then you have kids who are interacting with another person and going, yeah, well, my parents say that you guys are doing that and you're acting like animals. Um, and they're going to make statements like that because that is what stood out to them and that's what they heard. My children have experienced racism since they were in preschool. So the whole concept of waiting until middle school is damaging, just extremely damaging. It begins with when my child is born, are the books in our library diverse? Am I only buying my child 
dolls and cars or Superman heroes that look like them? Or are they filled with an array of color and disability at the same time so that that normalizes, yeah, people are different and that's just a natural part of my foundation versus I don't really see that until I get into a place where there's one or two people on my team or in my class that looks a little different and that doesn't really fully still cross that bridge of, of understanding. Um, you know, a lot of the hurt that black and brown children experience from white children, it's not intentional, it's ignorance. It's lack of knowing how many more times will you ask my child about her hair? Mm -hmm. And then do you know how much damage control we're having to do around why did God make me this way? And why can't my hair be like my friends? Because it makes me feel so different because everybody wants to touch it and everybody wants to talk about it. But a child who's looked at a book and seen that or has played with other children that all have different hairstyles isn't it's not going to be such a commodity. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to be so overly inquisitive to, to the point where it, it hurts. As you're talking about bringing baby home, like even if we look at birth outcomes in the black community, some of the effects of racism show up in these very subtle ways that have huge impact. Access to healthcare is appropriate or in intervention is appropriately managed. And then through the lifespan, all of those experiences of racism, like all those slights, then create huge consequences of increased experience of depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. My background's health psychology. So like the, the first mm -hmm. thing you learn about in health psychology is the age at which a person first experiences racism and later, later cardiovascular disease. I would imagine that as a black mom, there's just this sense, how on earth do I build structure to help my kids feel safe and secure? Yeah, it is, it is constant of trying to build understanding and have the conversation. And absolutely, and that's why cardiovascular disease is the number one killer, you know? <laughs> Um, African-American people. That, that predisposition is there. And then you look at the genetics, absolutely. What we carry from generation to generation. So often in the work that I do with people of color, they end up tracing much of their own mindsets to, hey, it wasn't even just my mom that I realized it's like that. It was my grandmother. Mm -hmm. You know, I realized that was something that she always said and that stuck with me and now it makes me anxious, you know, but I don't know how to get rid of it. And then there's also this feeling of betrayal mm -hmm. in, in that regard, doing anything or separating from that, you know, along that lines, I have someone who being pregnant and just all the different pieces of wanting to do things in a different way and just not even having your questions addressed in the same way. Cause there's also this perception I hear it all the time. Oh, you guys are so strong. Yeah. Patients are less likely to get the pain medication they need Yeah, because yeah. there is a perception, which yeah. you know, obviously harkens back to, to slavery about the idea mm -hmm. that pain perception mm -hmm. is different and, and yeah. it's mind blowing to me that it could be mm -hmm. 2020 and we still see different. Yeah. Like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so it's, you don't have, you don't have a choice. 
-hmm. you know, you, you don't have a choice, but then that also adds to the emotional load, the stress load, the physical load. And so oftentimes, even with your black and brown moms that you're going to come across, I promise you things aren't what they seem. Mm -hmm. I will assure you that it is never quite as beautiful and as happy as it looks on the outside, but we're very conditioned to know that is what you want to see of me. And that is what I will show because it makes you too uncomfortable to hear the other side of the story. Yeah. And that, that goes back to something you said earlier about needing to teach my kids how to fit in. And I think the really upsetting part and just of what you said just now too, is it, it should not be black, brown people's responsibility to learn how to fit in. Like it is, it is time for there not to be the white way of fitting in. We need it to be safe. And so that's the part that I want moms to start hearing. It is our responsibility to educate ourselves and learn how we are going to shift this world. So that is not the experience of black and brown people. Like it is not your responsibility to make all the change. It is our responsibility to make the change. And, and so I hope that there's a lot of moms listening to that, that, that are there. The next step is, okay, so how do we start doing that? How do we start shifting our everyday world so that your son doesn't have to fit in or try to be different to make it okay? Yeah. But it goes back to part of what we were talking about. It, it takes a willingness to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Part of the learning process for our kids is I have to make you uncomfortable so that you can be comfortable, mm -hmm. but that's not always reciprocated. You know, if we look at a church, for example, that's integrated, I can bet you a million times over, it was a black and brown family that came to that church. It was not the other way around. There was not a collective group of white Christians that said, hey, we're going to go to a different church and be a part of their community. We are conditioned, taught, and expected to be the ones that come into that. And I just use that because I feel like it's a really simple example. We're the ones that came to that dance studio, or we're the ones that came to that art place or, you know, whatever the case may be, but we do that intentionally. Yeah. You know, that is with focus. And yes, you don't think I am aware that when my daughter is two and she's the only black child in that class, that that is going to factor in body image for her and all of those pieces. But I have to make her uncomfortable so that she will be comfortable. Mm -hmm. The upside of that is it does allow us to be beautifully open and accepting of, of all, you know, and it does through the pain that they have experienced and we experience open us to, I fully accept you as you are and you can be whatever you need and choose because that is what I hope will be extended to us someday. So, you know, we attempt to use, that pain with purpose. And that's part of where my kids are right now. You know, I know you're seeing a lot and have always seen a lot, but you're seeing it in a completely different way.
but I want you to use the fact that you do know how to navigate between both worlds to be a bridge, mm -hmm. so to speak, versus feeling like you have to choose a side, but it's, it comes with a cost in, in that way. Such a powerful point you made about the idea of the, the way that integration happens is almost unidirectional and what would it look like to have a little bit of more fluidity and investment as people are kind of thinking about what do I do to make this better? That's a really powerful way to consider it is like maybe it doesn't mm -hmm. always have to be that there's mm -hmm. only in one direction. It's, it's funny, like I, my, one of my best friends um, growing up, her name is Kristen, actually. Oh. Um, yeah, it's spelled differently, but name means so much. And we've been through very diff different things of people kind of looking at us as we've been together hanging out, but we will have these conversations of if a white person went into an all black environment and they were very honest with themselves, they would be petrified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's privilege that you don't ever think, but how do you think we feel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it would, just the thought of it for most people would create anxiety of, oh my gosh, I don't think I could ever do that and yet not connecting, we have to do it all the time and act like we're good with it and navigate it. But yeah. we start that when they're small mm -hmm. so that they can do it when they're older. Yeah, my college roommate was named Sharice. But she had, she had been raised um, that the, like the Cosby show was like their bottle of like, how you fit in. They have been taught from a very young age, make sure that you pass and you pass effectively. And I've always thought, you know, in the years since I be, when I became a psychologist, just about what a mental load that must have been to always have to carry this in every context you are, you're having to act. And that, you know, idea of trying really hard to keep your guards up. I tune in so much to microaggressions that sometimes I will take my glasses off just so I cannot be tuned into them. But it's not like you ever get the opportunity to remove your glasses because the risk is too high. Like it's part of privilege I have to be able to say, I'm just going to tune this stuff out because there's no yeah. rest of my life in the midst of that. There, that does not exist. Yeah. That does not exist at all. And then especially as a mom, even when I'm home, I can't tune out because I need to pay attention to my husband and my children to make sure that they are okay. I need to note when my husband says, hey, will you come with me? And that's not always been his nature, that there's a reason that he now just wants me to come with him a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my son who was going to jog all the time, just preparing for college. And since the Ahmaud Aubrey situation is a little bit more apprehensive or would prefer that his dad be with him, he goes places. We don't go run outside. I'm going to go do that inside or in a place in public that's a circle and well lit and just the little things there. So yeah, there is no turning it off. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The American poet and author Scott Woods had made a statement really trying to explain for people who are saying, what's the big deal? Like, why, are we, why is this still on everybody's minds? And it was say was that racism is a complex system of social and political levers and pulleys that set up generations ago. 
that continues to work on behalf of whites at other people's expense, whether whites know it or like it or not. Racism looks like hate, but hate is only one manifestation. Privilege is another, access is another, ignorance is another, apathy is another. And one of the things I've been hearing from moms in my community is how do we keep this in the forefront? Like knowing that like potentially all of these riots, like that's part of how major change happened in the times of Martin Luther King. Like what do we do to like keep the pressure up and not kind of back out or not forget about how important mm -hmm. it is that this change still needs to happen? Yeah, you've got to change your world. You have to change and expand your sense of community. We stay invested in a cause when we become emotionally attached to it. Mm -hmm. And that comes through relationship. So if there aren't people in your life that you come across frequently that you're emotionally connected to, it will fade when you're done reading the book mm -hmm. or when this isn't the biggest trend to broadcast about you will naturally default back to your original mindset so it takes a change that might make you uncomfortable for a while or being intentional about how can we begin the process of creating that change you know no one expects for it to be overnight but what can we do and how can we put a plan in place where we are really actively engaging in this but the most organic way to do that is going to be to build relationships with people and not just because oh this is a great family that we will be able to ask questions you know but really thinking about who are the people in your life that maybe you've already come across in other spaces or times that you enjoyed, but we can all acknowledge once the convenience of the situation was gone, the relationship ended. Mm -hmm. And that may be for some a way to rebuild that connection point, but it's going to be finding your why, but making it deep enough that there's an emotional attachment to it mm -hmm. so that you don't lose the normalcy of the emotions behind this and yeah. that you keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing call to action. I hope everyone can really understand that and really reflect on their own lives to decide what changes they have to make and continue to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also the best way that you'll be able to see what do my kids really think? They're going to say more when you update your library and you start bringing in a bunch of books that they're like, okay, but why do we have these? You know, they're going to start asking questions because that is going to even open their eyes to go like, wait, these are things that we didn't used to do and I don't understand. And so it'll provide a unique pulse for you to see what their hidden understanding is because they're not fully aware of it. They're not looking for it, but it is there. We all have that implicit bias on both sides of the spectrum in different ways. And that's also why as a parent, we do life with other groups because I also want my own kids to go, although what you're seeing right now is really hard, part of what helps them to stay in a place of love is that we have beautiful relationships, deep, long-standing relationships with white families so they won't put it all in one bucket. 
you know, yeah. they won't take it and make it a generic assumption. They can separate racism from a black and white thing and recognizing, nope, we're not categorizing it that way, but that's because we have long, rich relationship with people that take that and, and completely blow smoke through the fact that we know that that's not true for everybody. Sharice, we are so thankful that you are willing to share your voice with us and your experiences with us and your heart with us. We hope that it really impacts our listeners to help them take a hard look at their role and responsibility and make some powerful, positive changes. So thank you. We're so glad to have had you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, Curious Mothers, we hope that you enjoyed that first interview with Sharice Johnson. We are so grateful to her. And next up is Mike Harris, so enjoy. We are grateful today to be joined by our esteemed colleague, Mike Harris. And uh, Mike is a really phenomenal therapist, also a yogi, and she has been willing to talk to us today a little bit about some of the experiences that that she might have experienced both as being a black mother raising a black child and working as a counselor. And I'm wondering for you, like how much are you finding you have to talk about racial issues in the last couple of weeks, both in your professional life and personal life? Yeah, I, I feel like professional, personal, um, every <laughs> aspect of my life, you know, I've been talking about it. Um, I think that it is at the forefront of um, everybody's minds and it's on the, the tip of everyone's tongue, whether they're, you know, saying it or not saying it. So definitely in the last week, last couple of weeks, a lot of conversations, which I think is good. You know, some of them have been very emotional and intense. Some of them have been, you know, just kind of easy I have noticed, so my daughter is nine and a half, and we definitely have had a little bit of a pivot. There are things that we have had to talk about just because there are circumstances that come up, and then there are things that I have been very intentional, her school has been very intentional about incorporating. So it might be a book that we read, you know, The Other Side by Jacqueline Woods, you know, Woodson is something that we were, you know, reading when she was younger. Um, about, you know, an African-American girl and a white girl who live on opposite sides of this fence, right? You know, there were definitely conversations that were infused into our family just because it was necessary, even though it wasn't such a direct, covert conversation about, like, what was happening in society. Now it is a little bit more direct, right? So, you know, I let her see some of the images on television um, that are in the media and let her ask questions. And the questions that she asked, I was, be I was able to answer in an organic way. So it definitely is a balancing act, but because she's older, we're starting to have a little bit more direct conversation that a lot of our conversation really leads to how we think of ourselves and how we treat others, right? Regardless of how people look, age, race, like whatever it is, like how we are ultimately going to respect people as human beings. But the, the layer of race absolutely has to be there as a part of our conversation in our family. I think it's interesting to try to translate some of this information, especially to some of our younger kids. I, I know um, last night at the dinner table, my brother became tearful about the incident in Charlotte where there was tear gassing of, you know, nonviolent protesters. 
And um, I think that seeing that strong emotion was difficult for my nine-year-old to digest because she was really trying to make sense out of the, these kind of events, I think can be difficult for younger kids. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny because yesterday I felt like, okay, we just need to decompress. Like, let's just decompress. So let's like grab something. And I'm the type of person, like every time we go out, we're mass, you know, and yeah. everything. So I'm like, let's go out to a place where we can grab something, get a little treat and go to one of our favorite lawns, which is the Romare Bearden Lawn. And so we were there Monday also. So we're like, let's go get our blankets, take the puppy, do all that. And so we noticed when we got there that the parking was a little different. There was like, you know, restrictions on the parking meters. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, okay, it's fine. I mean, it was a beautiful day yesterday. And there were some people out there get there to make a very long story short. We sit there, we eat our food, have our mask off. And next thing we know, like you kind of see the, the bicycles coming down you see the, the light starting and literally we found ourselves in the middle of a protest. Oh, they were so gracious because maybe about 15 bikes came and they blocked us because we were trying to pick up all our stuff mm-hmm. and the whole crowd. And I just was, and pulled out my video and I literally have footage of it. We ended up making it out into the car and then I went down the side street because everybody was stopped at the park. So we're going to make our way, you know, to 277. And, uh, and then the crowd starts to move again. And we're literally here. I had to reverse out because the crowd is chanting down. And, and it was, it was very real and it brought a lot of things in perspective, but my daughter got to see it firsthand. She was scared. She was calm. She was composed, but it was like, I didn't plan that. (laughs) And but, but it really brought into perspective that in the beginning of the week, she's asking, well, what is the protest, right? And then next thing you know, we're literally kind of in the middle of it. The, the, these, these kind of stark realities that sometimes we're thrown into, we have to, as parents, really jump in and be prepared to have those teachable moments, as they say. And I think a lot of that happens in Black families, where we're just having to have these conversations, whether it's a strange look in the store or somebody saying something offhand, constant. Yeah. I understand now like what my parents had to do and I respect the really hard conversations we had that I'm like, why are you telling me this? This doesn't make sense. My friends look like this and this and this. And then those moments in life where I go, oh my goodness, I can remember the conversation we had 10 years ago and this is the moment. Mm. This is what they're talking about you know, it all kind of connects eventually. You know, I hear you say kind of like, we have to have these conversations as a Black parent, as a Black family. And yet I I hope our listeners, regardless of what color you are, are kind of feeling the same. We all have to be having these conversations. And we made the choice to let our kids, we we sat down and we watched, we watched the video of George Floyd together and then processed it and my kids were really upset. Know that that part is wrong, but then we were saying as a family, we need to start talking a lot about the history of why the situation is what it is to understand. And you know, I could tell my kids were uncomfortable and my, my, my daughter was, I don't need to know the history to know what's wrong. And it's like, yeah, actually, you do, we all do, and we're, we're going to have to be uncomfortable. And it was one of those first times where we addressed an issue that we couldn't resolve at the end of it. It's this open 
hurt and wound and we had to leave it there. And normally as a parent, we can kind of wrap it up and, you know, make it all nice. And I, I just want to put that out there for our listeners who are feeling like, well, I'll figure this out. I'll make it okay. That's really not helpful. And it, and I think our kids can handle being really uncomfortable. That's where change and growth happens. So I guess I just want to put that out there that it's all of our responsibilities to be thinking about how are we bringing this into our homes as parents and doing something different. Yes, I completely agree. I think that this week with all the conversations and all the exchanges that I've had, I've heard many times, I'm sorry, I, I, I just, this, this, we haven't talked about this in our household. It just doesn't affect us. And when I used to hear that, it was like, oh, it's okay. Like, you know, I understand. And now I'm hurt by that. I, that's a problem, right? Like you have to be having these conversations and we have conversations about people that have disabilities and how to treat them. We have conversa conversations about LGBTQ people. We have conversations about people that um, have different socioeconomic statuses, higher than us and lower than us. We have those conversations and they don't necessarily apply to our household. So why do we eliminate the conversation of race if it doesn't apply to our household? So we really have to invite those conversations in and do it in a way that is happening from when kids are younger, kind of like the sex talk. So, you know, like when I'm out there in the community teaching, it's like, it's not one talk, right? Like we're doing it over and over and over again and little ways and little snippets. And so that's what I believe the conversation of race has to be about. And you do have to go back into the history. We go back into the history. I read a book, Tallahassee Coat, The Water Dancer. And I listened to it on audio. And so there are a few times where I'm like, well, I'm in the car. She's not really listening, you know, and we'll listen. And then I had to, you know, stop it. But she's like, well, well wait, what, what, why, why are they talking about? Um, and this is a book about um, a, a man and he is, um, he, he's a slave. His father is the, is the slave owner, right? So there's this really complicated storyline but it's basically just talking about his journey from being in slavery to eventually kind of escaping it for me the insight of just the history of the experience that black men have dealt with for years and years and years and so ironically through little snippets that my daughter heard I was able to kind of give her some context to it right and she got it you know she got it but so it's, it's hard, you know, even to go back into that because she's like, well, why, why would people own people? And like, you know, why would people think that people are only three-fifths of a human? Like, that, that makes no logical sense. <laughs> and I'm like, exactly. And how much she can digest now and how much what she's taking in will make sense later, I don't know. But I know I have an obligation to bring it into our home. So you're absolutely right. And I agree. I've been reading Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and she has a chapter on racism. And I don't know if you've read it, but it, she was talking about the Ferguson riots. And she thought she would be a good white mom and sit her daughters down and like look through some storybooks about about the civil rights movement. And there was a picture where there was a white woman in, in a protest and one of her daughters said, would that be us? And her and she was like, well, I would like to believe that that would be us. Her other daughter said, no, of course not, because we're not out there now. <laughs> if it would be us, then we would be out there doing those protests as they are. And she said that she just felt immediately crushed because she was, oh gosh, it's not the teaching, it's the doing and, and how impactful that was. And, and I thought it, it was just 
excellent timing to come across that chapter because mm-hmm. I'm thinking like how important it is to have that sense of and giving a path of this is how you start to fight against that. It feels a lot like the the work that we have developed for anti-bullying. It is not just understanding and saying, oh, this is what I believe. It's really learning how to stand up when you see injustices and care for people and be active. It's not just this passive belief. When Martin Luther King was preaching and active, only about 30% of whites really agreed with his message and how like it's, you know, of course now in history, we're all like, I mean, Jeff and I were talking last night about like, he's one of the most amazing authors, like just reading his speeches. It's just line after line after line of really impactful statements. And it's hard to imagine how that wasn't necessarily the reception. You know, history's kind of corrected that, but maybe it's also glossed over how difficult it was for his voice to be heard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that about President Obama and people that agree, people that don't agree, just just how that will kind of go down in history. And yeah, she was she brought up the example of Colin Kaepernick. All, there were so many people who were like, I just don't agree with the way he's expressing himself, or it's the wrong state, you know. And that's the same. That's the same issue, you know. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, that discomfort is that you need to recognize that and challenge it. A meeting that I was able to have this week with colleagues and friends, the topic of discomfort came up, right? And people being able to own their discomfort and say, yeah, this makes me uncomfortable, but I'm actually okay with it because I need to be uncomfortable. I need to see your pain and your discomfort, and I need to be able to be uncomfortable with that and own it because it needs to drive me to action and I need to start or stop, I should say, being complacent, right? It's a word that someone used. And, and, and that, you know, I think to me as a black woman with a black family operating in the world really makes me feel like people see my pain and discomfort and they're willing to do something about it. Not to say, oh, I I need to put up a blocker. (laughs) I need to protect myself from that. And I don't need to do anything to help you with your pain. And a lot of times when there are issues that aren't related to race, we are jumping to help people with their pain. We are jumping to address other people's discomfort. But when it comes to race, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to deal with that. So you know, I think that the topic of pain and discomfort is very real. That is one thing that I, I'm hoping that people can start to, to, to look at. And the way that I think that you can do that in your family as an adult, that you can help your children do that is with connection. If you are making connections, as, as the, the daughter of the author of Untamed was saying, right? Like if we're out there, then, then we're out there, we're doing the work, we're connected. But if we're here talking about it, we're not connected, right? And so when people are truly connected, whatever that means, whether it's a personal relationship or out there fighting the fight or making efforts, then you are connected with somebody's pain, right? And you are connected with their story, which is really important. You're connected with the why behind what they do. And then with that connection, you can actually say, okay, oh, I get it, I understand. Or I don't understand, but I'm going to try. Or I don't understand, but I'm still here with you, right? So I think that connection is really important and we need to really push that. And that does, you know, mean sometimes being uncomfortable, 
and sometimes challenging your own beliefs and efforts to really connect with someone who's different from you. How do you allow for efforts at connection and not having it feel like appropriation? How do you create those meaningful connections without trying to make people you're interacting with feel like they are always having to be the guide to welcome to our culture? I feel like when I have personal connections with people, those things happen naturally. It's just kind of being in relationship with someone, whether it's being in relationship with a colleague or being in relationship with a parent of one of my daughter's friends. And through that relationship and connection, I think sometimes things happen organically. People ask me about my hair after they've known me for a while. They don't do it on the first day, you know? <laughs> and, and we can have a conversation, you know, about, well, you know, how much time do you spend? And how long did your braids take, you know, when I have braids in? Or how often do you straighten your hair, you know? And, and, and do you wash it, you know, every day? Or, you know, because like, I find that if I only wash mine every three days and add a little baby powder, it's great. Like, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know why people did that, right? Like, so those organic conversations start to happen and you learn, you know what I mean, about the, the, the other person. But also I think that it creates an avenue for you to travel down to get to some of the harder areas, the more challenging areas that you have to discuss. They, you know, they say kind of being in the room. There's a book, Why Are All the Black Kids Getting okay. Together at Lunch? The name Jar, which has to do with like an Asian girl and her name. Like they're just, there's so many. Just being able to go down the avenue and have those harder conversations. And like I said, with the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at Lunch? We, we, we flock to each other, right? Like, you know, kind of white people have, you know, and, and Hispanic, you know, Latinx people. And we, we, we go to our comfort zone and, and what's familiar. So to step sometimes into a world that's not familiar is uncomfortable. I will, I can't speak for every black person, but a lot of black people have to do that because that's the way of the world. So we're comfortable. I can be in any room with anyone and I'm fine. I just, that's how I was raised. I don't have a problem with it. But I think that there are a lot of white people that can't necessarily say that. Like if I have a party and I'm like, oh, you're going to be the only one, or they step into the room and they're the only one. It's like, I don't know what to do um, or say, you know, but I think that you know, those are the opportunities where you get to really be and you get to adjust and you get, to, and if somebody says, how do you feel being the only person in the room? Deal with that discomfort and answer, you know? So I guess my long winded um, answer is just, if you're really building those connections, I think a lot of times it won't feel like that appropriation. I think it will feel like I'm connected to this person. We have trust and we can have this conversation. What also needs to happen as parents is us as a white mother challenging our whiteness. And that is a possibility for Kristen and I because we live in a city where there's options for diversity, where we can really make sure that we are living fully to our beliefs. But I'm thinking about some of the super white suburbs and I'm wondering about those parents, like they're not off the hook, right? Like they're just as responsible for challenging this, for teaching their kids, for addressing these issues. I think that you have to really diversify in all these different ways to really diversify your mind and your thoughts and your ideas. We grew up traveling. We grew up, we, we didn't like it at the time, but our parents, you know, they would drag us to like jazz festivals and we we're like, why are we here? <laughs> I have such a great appreciation for music because 
of the exposure that my parents gave us, you know, my love for travel. I didn't take my first international trip until I was 24 years old. And then I took a trip every year up until I had my daughter when I was 31, because my parents showed us that, you know, and, and, and talked to us about the importance of it. I can't speak for the really affluent, very white, <laughs> you know, kind of family. How much are we even diversifying, right? Like if you're very affluent and you're not tapped in to people with lower SES, right? If, if you're African-American and you're not tapped in to people of color with low SES because you have a certain status, that's also a problem too. That's a lack of diversity as well. So, you know, you're wanting your child to be able to deal with anyone, but they get scared when they go into a certain neighborhood with Ahmaud Aubrey and, you know, my brother who is just, <laughs> he is just, he is, he has the warmest heart and, and he's so compassionate, but he's this big black guy. Sometimes he just speaks in these very straightforward, like, you know, militant ways, which I love. Um, because he says a lot of the things sometimes that people don't want to say. But, you know, he said, he's like, I wish white people would stop running, you know, because at the end of the day, I, I, I added the point, how many of those people are going to go do that run in a black neighborhood? Yeah. Not many. <laughs> right. So it's just, you know, and, and I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm just saying that those are the kind of things that sometimes need to be said and need to be answered so we can be real about this issue. I had a colleague send a really awesome message yesterday via email to the four black people and he, he happens to be white male and he's just kind of this very gentle nice like he's just he's, he's a really really great person and very insightful and intentional and and he sent this message um that was kind of written you know i believe by a person of color and it was just like you know, we will contradict ourselves, you know, and, and it, which is something I said in a meeting, um, we, you know, we, we, we want you to talk to us. And we don't want you to talk to us. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, 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 we need you to reach out to us and we need you to give us space. Like it was just, but you know, and then it said all these other things <clears throat> and, 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 and it just kind of highlighted the fact that it's complicated, but we can be in this together and we can figure it out together. And it's not always gonna be kind of clean and smooth. It might be a little messy and bumpy, but if we can embrace that and we can walk together in that, then we can really promote change, but we have to do the work. And that's where I've had to challenge myself, right? You know, saying yes to things just to be a part of things like this. People can really listen and hear, but at the same time thinking about as we, you know, go forward, what are we gonna do? There are times where like, if I have people at my house, it's all black and brown people, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I don't wanna make that person uncomfortable. And like, I don't really know if people will be okay talking and blending. Anytime I've ever done that, everybody's been fine, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's really giving people the opportunity and creating the opportunities for people to come together and then sometimes it might be to come together and have intentional conversation. Let's have a, a drink, have dinner, but let's talk about themes of Untamed or themes of the book, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at Lunch, right? Mike, would you mind me sharing? I just looked up what your brother said. Would you mind me sharing it? Because it was, to me, a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, not at all. It said, white people, please stop organizing jogs to honor Ahmed Arbery. Jogging for 2.23 miles isn't going to change a thing. How about fighting injustice for 2.23 hours a day for 2.23 years? I wonder how much different the country would be then. That to me encapsulated ongoing 
relational exchange and kind of leaning in over and over and over again that really matters. Yeah, absolutely. One of the themes that has come up repeatedly in this discussion is that there's going to be a lot of discomfort. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to feel really bad at times. This is going to be painful. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that, that is actually what we should expect to feel. And I think as, mo- as mothers, we need to encourage each other that when it gets hard, when it's painful, that doesn't mean we pull back, right? Like, as, as mothers of all color, we need to help each other stay that line and not run when it's uncomfortable or our feelings get hurt. We need to encourage each other. This is not a, a trend. This is, this is something that we need to be actively engaged in, in raising the next generation. And we have that responsibility as parents. This is not a, a one and done. This is from here on. And I just think to make sure that if somebody is expressing feelings of, well, I've done it or that, you know, I'm mad about this, so I'm done. Like, no, we have to call each other out and hold each other responsible to stay in this fight from here on. Absolutely. You know, as, as therapists, you know, we talk about, especially if you do therapy that involves more than one person, you're doing family therapy, co-parenting, couples therapy, A lot of the time I talk about healthy conflict and I explain and try to educate people and say, you know, we have been taught that conflict is nasty and is is unhealthy and is a bad thing, but conflict is, is good in a lot of situations and healthy conflict, right? Knowing how to have those conflict is necessary. Ultimately, if we are able to kind of embrace healthy conflict and say, I can be in this with you and I can hear your perspective and you can hear mine and some things we'll agree on and other things we may not agree on and some things we're going to be in conflict about. But to trust that that conflict in some ways is going to lead to a win-win, which I think is growth, right? When people are growing, I think it's a win-win. Healthy conflict is okay and it can lead ultimately to my growth and theirs then it changes our perspective of those exchanges, right? It, It gives us a different feeling when we're in it and we're uncomfortable and we're like, I can lean in. It's okay. You know, this is going to lead to something better, even though it doesn't feel um, warm and fuzzy. How's your work been different maybe in the last couple of weeks? First, kind of as a priority to like every person of color and family of color that I work with and just said, hey, checking in. How are you? Just reaching out. Want to let you know that you have a safe space in me to be able to bring this up in addition to other things that we talk about in your therapy work. Got long paragraphs from some people and I got sentences from other, like, it's good, we're good, it's a tough time, you know? See ya, like in a couple days or whatever it is. That was, you know, really interesting, but I felt like I just wanna let people know that they have that safe space and they can be heard if they need to. In other, you know, ways, it's I've had um, clients bring it up, but I ironically, which I don't think it's really ironic, because I support the LGBT, LGBTQ community. Those are the people that are asking me how I'm doing, <laughs> which is really interesting. In a couple of sessions, I've actually called that out and said, it's really interesting. Queer clients who are stepping into that space and they're like, but is it really interesting, Mike? Like, is it interesting? Because some of that same oppression and some of the same things like that we've experienced, you guys are experienced, which I think it makes, it makes uh, the, the space of empathy a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and stepping into that discomfort, you know, easier. 
Because I did see a little bit of that discomfort with even the people that were openly talking about it. Once we started talking about it, it kind of, you know, faded, but they still stepped through that discomfort to check on me, right? To ask me how I was doing. So there are a couple themes that I've, I've seen. I talk to everyone. So like when we're out walking our little puppy or my neighbors, I'm like, how are you? They're like, great. How are you? And I'm like, great. So how are you doing? And they're like, well, <laughs> and it's been interesting, just the different perspectives, you know, in my neighborhood, but I want people to know that I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to start conversation about it. And we're not just going to talk about the weather and it's okay. And we can still live and breathe in the same neighborhood and keep moving forward. One thing that I did want to come back to is that pain and that hurt, being able to connect with somebody's pain and hurt, which I think a lot of times is the root of people's anger. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I said that kind of as an adult, but I want to make that connection to the children mm-hmm. because there are very indirect covert things that kids are exposed to that create hurt and pain. My daughter has talked about that feeling of noticing that she is in the minority, I should say, also at her school. Even things like shape, right? Like, well, my thighs are bigger, you know, my bottom is bigger, you know, those kind of things. And I'm like, you're beautiful, honey. Like people pay for that stuff. Like, please, she doesn't get that, obviously. (laughs) But, But my point is, is that suddenly there's pain that's created, you know? So then she gets into middle school and that pain may have, uh, ha- ha- has, has maybe multiplied in some ways. Hopefully I'm able to mitigate that and not have that be the case. But there are things that like, you know, kids feel angry about. Like I, I remember working with clients that went to majority white schools and, and brown girls and black girls saying, guys, don't look at me. That hurts, right? That's where I'm hoping parents can really help in some ways help their children really navigate those even subtle nuanced things that happen that create pain and hurt, right? And it's not to say that there are white children that don't experience, I don't look like this or my shape or, you know, whatever it is, like I don't want to minimize that at all. But I do want to acknowledge that there are little subtle things that sometimes do create hurt, pain and anger in black and brown children and they're like well why are they so angry and it's like well where do we start you know but we have to be able to to get into those little nuanced things as well to really be able to help and support i hope that makes sense but it totally makes sense all of those little movements and acceptance create the opportunity for ongoing acceptance and the need for ongoing conversation in all of our homes right as these are the things that we need to be always kind of talking about and checking in like what is going on what are the experiences if we're not talking about it then it just happens and then the pain is there and and then there's no growth in coming together and i think this is where we start to see colors separate as as kids get older right and that's what we're trying to stop absolutely yeah my daughter in a checking in you know i'll say i'll ask her so how's everything going with your friends you know like just and how you know just like ask, asking about the dynamics and everything and sometimes she's just like it's fine like everybody's fine <laughs> looking at me like i'm crazy um and then other times you know she'll have a story and i just kind of listen Mm-hmm. And one time the story was the boys, they were like ranking people by size. So uh, they were like, who is the skinniest? 
girl and then who's the biggest girl in the classroom who's the skinniest boy who's the biggest boy the girls they're not even like it's not on their radar but for whatever reason the boys were like poking fun at it there was a little boy in the classroom who was a little bit more husky you know to like use that like he's a kid and the mom ended up pulling him out and my daughter said yeah because like this person was constantly saying things and doing things you know she's giving her like kid i, I don't really know how much of it was accurate or not um, but in my head, I was real, and he happened to be a black child. And so in my head, I was thinking the layer of just being black and then adding any other layer, it makes it more complicated. And so, you know, I just took it as a moment to just say, well, what did you feel about that? And what did the girls have to say, you know, and how, how do you see people, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and really kind of talk about that and talk about why in a lot of ways to use my language, I don't know that this is language I use it with her, but why comparison kills, right? And how we really have to come back to our authentic self and be okay with that. And like, everybody is all these different shapes and sizes and shades and you know all of that and how do we really embrace people's differences and how can we really look at somebody's difference and, and appreciate that versus looking at it in comparison and it becomes either po more positive or more negative in our eyes like how do we eliminate doing that that's kind of an example of like just the way these kind of conversations happen you know, in our household, not that they're always perfect. They're subtle sometimes, but we're trying to push them along. Hearing you have experienced, your daughter has experienced other children, it's really powerful and important to hear that and to know that because, and it kind of goes back to that, like being able to have these conversations. I need to know these things so that I can be talking and addressing them so that change can happen. And so I guess I, I hope that people hear this. I hope this makes them curious to want to know the experience so that they can start making shifts and talking about things differently in their own homes with their own kids so that this just doesn't stay this way. And it, it just goes back to your point of we really need to make sure that we are living a life of diversity so that we understand what is really happening. Because if you don't know, it's easy to do nothing and say that there's not a problem. Absolutely. And creating space. I think I love doing things like this and giving people kind of tangible takeaways and really creating space is an opportunity. If you tuck your child in every night to create a space to have some conversation we sit down almost every night together um, to eat dinner right and that's a time where we're talking and having conversation and i've had to make efforts to put my phone away and not bring my computer and do a few emails at the dinner table to create the space to have conversation you create space by asking questions and being willing to listen not trying to fix it, but just asking an open-ended question. You can come back later and give suggestions. A lot of times we really haven't intentionally created that space and it's not so deliberate. So our kids aren't talking to us because there's just not the space to do it. We don't really hold space for them in the way we need to because we haven't been intentional. Well, Mike, I am so grateful for your time today. And I know that it's you're being tapped to, to talk a lot. So I really appreciate that you allowed us to make uh, the list of people you were willing to engage with. And uh, real thankful that you were able to join us. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. And I hope that our conversation really sparks more conversation and more connection for your listeners. 
Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that this was a message that you can integrate into your lives and your relationships. If you would like more information, Sharice Johnson can be found at Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness. The website is www.jadeintegrativewellness.com. And she also has an Instagram account that covers some of her work and advocacy. And her Instagram is Sharice, C-H-A-R-R-Y-S-E underscore J on Instagram. Mike Harris can be found at Southeast Psych in Charlotte, North Carolina. She is also developing a website for her own brand called Mikeology, which will be available later this summer. In the meantime, you can contact her at Southeast Psych. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Learn more at www.thecuriousmother.com, where you will find resources related to episode topics. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.